Hello, my name is John Lynch, and you're very welcome along to another edition of A Living Gift. In this week's programme, we meet Claire O'Connell. Claire originally comes from Cork and received a heart transplant back in 2015. In the following documentary, she tells how her motivation of experiencing a life lived helped her through an exceedingly difficult period of her life. how her body attempted to reject her new heart, the long and demanding recovery process that she endured after the operation, how her condition changed her career path, and the importance of extended family in helping this brave lady overcome a challenge that would have overwhelmed many. In order for Claire to undergo a heart transplant, a suitable heart had to become available for her. This took place in 2015. The procedure resulted in Claire being placed in an induced coma for 3.5 weeks. Before the transplant operation, there was also an extensive assessment process she had to go through. First off, there's a, there's a lot of stuff to, to go through. Obviously, they, they need to look at your heart and see what that's like. But then there's also your kidney function and your liver function and your every other function, really. And it also involves a, a, a psych assessment, which I would would never have dawned on me like some of it is even as simple as like are you someone that adheres to taking your medication on a regular basis because if you're not then you're more likely to reject that obviously has greater ramifications down the line that that's part of it but also and you only know this after the fact obviously the process or the experience of having had a transplant is very complex not complicated but complex because it brings up all kinds of emotions and feelings, thoughts that you 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 would never think of b- beforehand. Because it's it's reasonably logical. I need an organ for me to get an organ. Something awful has to happen. Mm-hmm. Someone else. I was very unwell immediately after the well immediately before and immediately after the transplant. I was placed in an induced coma so that my body could recover without me in a conscious state interfering with it, so to speak. So I was actually in an induced coma for about three weeks, three and a half weeks as far as I know. Usually people would be discharged in that space of time. I'm not really, I don't really remember a whole pile of anything until about five and a half weeks. Five and a half weeks, that's that's a blur, more or less. More or less the odd bit of lucidity, like I can remember the yeah. odd, I remember hallucinations vividly. I remember boxing gloves. They're basically to stop you from pulling at everything because your immediate reaction is to yank everything out. I don't have a waking up moment, okay. so to speak. Kind of more of a half groggy awareness and then gone again. Almost feeling abandoned a lot of the time because obviously visiting hours are very restricted. Someone could visit me, but if I wasn't having one of those kind of moments of slight awareness, then it was kind of like, where has everyone gone and why have they all, you know, Claire also experienced something that has known as survivor guilt at this stage. She was struggling to come to terms that somebody had to die in order for her to live. Naturally, she thought about the person who was her heart donor. Actually, that first kind of 12 months afterwards, I felt a sort of, I 
think guilt might be too strong a word, but I can't think of mm-hmm. any other similar word. You, you, you know that someone else had to die for you to live. Were you spiritual? Were you? Did you turn to religion at that time? No, I think my my uncle died at the age thirty six. <laughs> turned me off. <laughs> it was kind of like really, there's no justice in that. Obviously, it's way more complex than that. Mm-hmm. No, I don't even know. I kind of don't. You know, there's some people like, oh, it's a miracle. I'm kind of like. No, it's scientific. There was an organ and yeah. it matched, and I was really lucky. You just get the call. You get the call. There's an there's you're, there's an ambulance there within half an hour, and you're gone up the road. There isn't there is no thinking. You you know you need the operation. You know that hopefully it will happen at some point. To be honest, at that point you're kind of so tired. Once a new heart is transplanted into your body, there is sometimes the danger that your body can reject it. This normally happens soon after the operation takes place, but in Claire's case, it occurred a lot later. Four years after, which is unusual. It wasn't very obvious. I was very tired at the time, but I've been very tired for nearly all of my adulthood. Sometimes mildly tired, sometimes extremely tired, sometimes can't move. But it wasn't. Tiredness is such a non-specific symptom of anything that it's kind of neither here nor there so i was having a routine biopsy cardiac biopsy and angiogram and it came back as what they call a two a two hour rejection i then had to be admitted to the matter for iv steroids to basically completely kill off the immune system i seem to react quite severely to steroids high dose steroids particularly in that it's almost like I can feel every cell in my body working. It was almost like my my nervous system was itchy. It was worrisome at the time, but I didn't have symptoms of rejecting, which would be like the symptoms I would have had pre-transplant. When you spend a period of time in the company of Claire, you soon realise that family is everything to her. She has forged a strong bond with her siblings and extended relations. Indeed, she drew strength from these feelings to overcome the obstacles placed in front of her by her illness. We hear how an experience with depression helped to prepare her for her heart transplant operation and how she overcame the disappointment of a number of false dawns before the operation finally took place. There was a particular event that happened was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back. I was, I would probably have been prone, very prone to overthinking. And um, it was actually, it was a relationship breakup that, that triggered the whole thing. It wasn't the cause mm-hmm. of the episode. I think it was just one thing on top of another, on top of another. And yeah, I, wa- I wasn't in a happy place. But that said, and I know it's a strange thing to say, I'm actually kind of happy that happened when it did. Because first off, I realised that the way I was living wasn't really living um, because I was sad all the time like all the time I'd cry at work on my way home from work on my way into work and I was like this can't be normal and people go but you know you've been through a lot now and you know it's to be expected kind of thing you're kind of like no this can't be right so to be fair that one severe episode helped I suppose in a strange way to prepare me for what was to come because if the person I was before I had the depressive episode, needed to have a heart transplant. I don't know that I would have had the psychological disposition to be able to go through the entire process while that whole period was very unpleasant. It wasn't a bad thing. People use a phrase, it's don't sweat the small stuff. 
Well, I'd rather not sweat the small stuff or the big stuff at this point because while we as humans like to think we're in control of everything, we're really not. When I was waiting to eventually um, have the transplant, I think I, I think I was called up to the matter nine or ten times. The first one or two were really exciting, and you'd be like, "Oh, da da da," da and I'll, you know, I'll tell this person, I'll tell that person. Then it got to the third or fourth one, and you weren't telling anyone anymore. Not so much for yourself, but they were all getting like excited, and then I'd be like, "No, no, I'm back home again." You know. I was living with a friend at a time, and I remember the first time we had a call. She actually had a couple of her friends over, and we were eating, and it was like, "Oh my gosh, this is happening!" It was all like super exciting, and. And all of that, mum and dad were in Cork, so they went from Cork up to Dublin and I went from Galway up to Dublin in an ambulance, it's always in an ambulance, um, which sounds way more exciting than it actually is, trust me. And, you know, you'd, you'd get up and you'd have the bloods and you'd have the x-ray and you'd have the this and the that, and then you'd wait, and then someone would come in and the, the transplant coordinator would come in and it'd be like, no, it's not a match. And the first one or two times it was, it, it was horrible. But after kind of maybe the third or fourth time, the, I remember the, the transplant coordinator saying one evening, you are the calmest family I've ever come across in this entire process. Well, sure, it'll happen when it'll happen. Like, there's no point in you putting in one that I, I'll reject like that. That's no good to anyone. And it's, well, at the whisk- risk of sounding crude, it's a waste. Prior to the operation, Claire had to live a very measured and disciplined life. She had to avoid large gatherings. This often resulted in her missing out on many family celebrations, including her dad's 60th birthday party. Yeah, he was 60 in the January of 2015, and he wanted a party, and I was like, oh, would you have a party? I won't be able to go. Whether I'm in hospital or not, I won't be able to go. And my mum got really thick with it. She's like, you can't have a party. Claire's really sick. And I was like, should I be really sick whether he has a party or he doesn't have a party? It's kind of a moot point, really, isn't it? Mm. You know, let him have the party. It's, you know, like, just because I'm sick, the whole world doesn't stop. Do you know what I mean? So I suppose you, you kind of got used to missing out on things. And that's probably the biggest difference between then and now. Or like you you would plan things and then you wouldn't be able to. Like my, my friends and I, we, we would have gotten not a big drinker, but we'd, we'd go out for something to eat and always a great place to go out for something to mm-hmm. eat. But you'd plan something and we'd like book somewhere for two weeks in advance and then I'd text the night before and I'd be like, lads, no, yeah. can't do it. And, you know, I'm or, or choking with a chest infection or pleurisy or, you know, some other really nice yeah. infectious disease. Sometimes leading up to a, a huge moment like that in your life, people wouldn't think back maybe of books that they read music on the radio something that triggers memories of what that era was like in your life anything stand out for you like that any particular music books anything that brings you back immediately to leading up to the major major operation it's kind of the opposite because i was exhausted all of the time and really tired all of the time and had very little concentration so i read a huge amount i have a room upstairs that's got shelves upon shelves upon shelves of books but i couldn't read because I couldn't concentrate on anything. So magazines became a thing, which I know don't go near at all, unless there happens to be one in a waiting room or something. Everyone was watching Breaking Bad at the time, but because I couldn't concentrate on anything, I it was actually way after the fact that I watched Breaking Bad. It's It sounds like a weird thing to say. 
For some reason, Florence and the Machine is an association. I think that must have been when I was unwell first, indeed, before I was actually diagnosed with the heart failure because it was quite difficult to actually get a diagnosis. And I have two cousins. They were, they were 11 and 12 when I had the transplant and I was living, living out there with them. But we used to, there's a couple of songs, like um, the Bee Gees Staying Alive. Myself and Owen used to think it was hilarious to sing that at me. I want to break free, Queen. Every time I wound up in hospital, it was like, I want to break free. Dad used to always threaten to bring a cherry picker up to Cork to like go up to the window and I'm like, no, Dad, I'm really better off in here. Like more older songs than Don't Break My Heart, My Achy Breaky Heart, but I used to put some your own bad, lyrics at the bad that. words into that <laughs> my super um, sugary part I'd be quite okay talking about death and dying because well we're all going to die but talking about it to other people they really don't like it I don't know and I, I do think it's kind of an Irish thing we're great at having a wake but we're mm. no good at talking about the fact that what happens before it happens we celebrate death so much in yeah the, the Irish funeral is but always we won't, famous we won't talk about even when it's like really super imminent it's, you still won't talk about it so I remember saying right you're not putting me in the ground I want to be cremated I wanted to be cremated well not that I want to be cremated mm. but you understand what I mean yes since my late teens I don't want to go on the ground I just don't my, one of my uncles passed away when I was 15 and even now I can still visualise the whole and I'm like no don't be talking like that that doesn't like let's know if you notice but I, I need a heart transplant like seriously the likelihood of me seeing Easter never mind Christmas is somewhere between seven no 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 no. don't be talking like that almost as if talking about it would make it happen quicker you know it's not like I'm morbid but you know yeah. if something's going to you know Okay. happened and it's going to happen. Before Claire became unwell, she had moved to Galway from the Rebel County and had worked as a radiotherapist at Galway University Hospital. So did the medical background in any way prepare her for her heart transplant? I suppose to a point, because you're kind of used to a hospital environment, I suppose. Whether other health professionals mean to or not, I think they not treat you differently but when they say the long convoluted bloody bloody blah words you've a better sense maybe of, of what they what they mean but also I think the process because you because I sorry had been unwell for quite a few years before I actually had the transplant you and they and everyone were all sort of part of the process so it's almost like the medical world becomes a part of you and you have of it because you get to know you get to know them all mm-hmm. as well and that's sort of a comfort not a comfort but it's it helps yeah i know you're so indebted maybe to all the various consultants medical people not alone the people that performed the operation but the people that kept you going in advance of it you were very eager to highlight that as well i sense uh yeah i mean i attend six or seven different specialities at this point. Not all because of the, the transplant, I, I hasten to say. I was very sick f- for a fair length of time before I had a diagnosis. I had a really unusual form of heart failure that even when they did an angiogram and a cardiac MRI, which is an MRI specifically of the heart, it didn't show anything. So I had all of these symptoms but no diagnosis. I was kind of on a 
which we call it a roundabout between respiratory and cardiology in Cork and in Galway because sometimes if I was at home visiting and I became unwell um, when I was with my mum and dad I'd end up in hospital in Cork. I suppose the person to whom I'm probably most indebted to in a certain sense is actually the respiratory consultant up here in Galway, um, Bob, who took a notion to run a particular test, blood test, which is a cardiac marker called pro, a pro-BNP, it's a protein marker, and it was off the charts. And he very quickly referred me to cardiology, where when they did an angiogram on this occasion, demonstrated that I had heart failure. An intervention that probably saved your life? Yeah, yeah. I'd make no bones about it, I'm very grateful to Bob. Because as I say, it was so, it was impossible. Um, they'd tried all kinds of everything, I'd had all kinds of procedures, I'd had a thing called a VATS procedures where they put a camera into your lung and they they take a look at it and there was never anything to show on anything, it was the strangest, strangest thing ever. And then I, I had a heart failure consultant, Pat, and then there were the, the heart failure um, nurse specialists, Mary and Emer. And Mary and Emer were awesome. Sometimes I'd be at work and I don't know, it would just all be too whatever. And I'd ring Emer and I'd be like, I don't, how are you? I don't know. I don't, come over. Okay, I'll come over. Nearly always I, I felt better after the fact. They were at the end of the phone whenever I, whenever I needed them one night, not too long before the transplant. I was very unwell and one of my aunt's neighbours is a GP and I said, I wouldn't normally ask this, but um, I think you need to ask Eamon to come and have a look at me. And of course Eamon came and have a look at me and he kind of went, oh dear God, what am I going to do with this one? And he wanted me to go into A&E and I was like, I'm not going into A&E on a Sunday night. It's just not happening. And so we rang Emer on a Sunday night at home. And she was like, no, I think you're right. Go into the acute medical unit in the morning. They know you there. You do not need to be sitting in A&E. I mentioned that because it was a Sunday night. Emer was not working. Indeed, you could have argued that Emer needn't, needn't have even had her phone anywhere near her. The importance of medical professionals listening to what patients are saying is something that Claire cannot emphasise enough. She now outlines some of her individual experiences of this and how it even still irritates her to this day. Where I went in to this GP and I said, I have heart failure, feeling quite unwell, worse than usual. Um, I think I might be you know, developing a really bad chest infection or, or something along those lines. He looked at me and he told me I couldn't possibly have heart failure. I was too young. I was like, well, that's that's lovely and you're 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 right, but I do. And here's all the medication to demonstrate the points. I'm not making up the fact of heart failure. He wrote a letter. We went into A and E. My sister was with me. Forgive me for this, Andrea. If if anyone were to look at the two of us, I'd be the one that wouldn't be saying a whole pile of anything. I don't get cross as such. A junior doctor came in. No respect to junior doctors. Even awful job pulling double shifts and, frankly, inhumane working conditions in in some aspects. But he came in and he he asked me a few questions and that was fine. And he said, oh, you work as a radiation therapist? I said, I do. Did you ever think that maybe that caused your condition? At which point I went, no, because I would pick up more radiation on a transatlantic flight. At which point he kind of looked at me 
my my version of being cross is talking in a tone of voice like this through my teeth. Maybe you'd like to go and read my chart before you come in here and ask me stupid questions. This is not my first rodeo. I've been at this a while. And she she still took took the call. And Mary was the same. What are you making of this new life that you now have? It's not the same as before. You don't suddenly get a, a new organ and everything goes back to the way it was. Certainly not the same. I don't work in healthcare anymore, partly because the job I did was quite physical. Also, if you've spent as much time in a hospital as I have, there comes a time when you maybe need to park it. And that took a very, very, very long time to kind of make that decision. A huge amount of who we are or how we define ourselves, I think, is by our roles. I don't have children, but I really liked my job. I loved meeting patients. I'm, I'm, I'm good with people. And so it was very difficult to make a decision to leave it. Now, some people might argue, oh, well, you could have gone into admin or you could have done this, you could have done that. Or, But I liked my job because I met people, which was never going to happen if I, if I was stuck in a back, back office somewhere. I did a complete about turn and I started a Bachelor in Arts, which is not a Bachelor in Science, obviously. And it was really nice because even though I'm older than the majority of the students there, I mean, there's a lot of mature students in university, but for the most part, they're, they're a lot younger. But it was nice to be a part of something again. And I've made some really, really good friends since. Now, it took me five years to do a three-year undergrad, partly just things happening when I was in first year my mum had a stroke a very severe stroke she had a bleed that kind of knocked us all for <clears throat> for six and then when I was in second year I rejected <laughs> and it was a bit like Covid and that I couldn't leave the house for weeks afterwards because my immune system didn't work and so that had ramifications and I have a tendency to pick up infections really easily as anyone who is on any kind of immunosuppressive medication will testify to so yeah, and then COVID happened and some people love online studying, but I'm not one of them. I did it over five years. Everyone, certainly in in the departments in which I was studying, particularly the philosophy department, has always been really, really, really super understanding and kind. I eventually finished everything in August. I got a first class degree. Congratulations. Um, Bachelor of Arts. And I'm now doing a master's in philosophy. To preempt any questions anyone might have, I have no idea what I want to be when I grow up. I liked doing what I was doing before all this, and yeah. I haven't had an epiphany since. So when people go, well, what's that going to qualify you as? I'm like, nothing in particular. But then I already had a degree that I was able to do something very particular, and now I can't do that anymore for various reasons. As you can probably gather by now, family is playing a huge and a vital part in Claire's life. Her connection with her nieces and nephews are strong. And despite their relatively young age, the subject of Claire's transplant operation is a major talking point for one of Claire's nieces. She's very inquisitive about my new heart. Taper the, the information, although that, that said, her, um, my sister's currently pregnant with her third child, which is great. As someone who is A, older, and B, I've, I've, I've had a transplant. For females who've had 
transplants but particularly hearts um, pregnancy is an awful lot more complicated I've always wanted to have kids no not everyone wants kids it's not the be all and end all of everything you know it's but since her mum has become pregnant here she's become quite oh you know boys don't have babies Claire no they don't girls have babies they do you'll have three babies I was like what well there's three of ye and there's my three cousins and there'll be three of us so you'll have so three is obviously the magic number and I was like um okay but you know there's not not everyone gets to have a baby then a couple of weeks later it kind of became oh yeah uh yeah but with your new heart Claire you know but your new heart now you you know you couldn't be doing that and then last week it was her birthday so where did the new hearts come from I just said I was really lucky the doctor's phone one did they cut you oh yeah they, they did but I was fast asleep and it was all okay if someone hadn't donated their organs then I wouldn't be sitting here and neither would an awful lot of other people be sitting anywhere my feeling on the opt out rather than opt in is because people don't like to talk about death and dying organ donation is therefore something that unless they've some sort of experience of it one way or the other or they know someone who's either had a had a transplant or was an organ donor they generally don't think about it too much there, there there's a phrase that's oft used at this point it's have the chat because the thing is even if you have an organ donor card and you've signed it and your next of kin has signed it and it's all above board for various reasons because it's obviously a very traumatic time if you haven't spoken to them about it it can still be that they can say no, even though you would have wanted to, but you didn't ever necessarily express the wish. It could well be that you don't wish to do it, and that's th- this is not a moral imperative or, or anything of, of, of the like. Talk to your family or your partner or whoever it is so that they know that if it was to ever happen, that they would be executing your wish forewarned us for arms well if you talk about it beforehand then they'll have a an accurate take on what it is you would like outside of education and life in general 2022 how would you describe it now at the minute well it is what it is come to a way of being where if i can't control something there's really no point in me stressing about it i can't control the weather as I said to someone in Cork at the weekend, they were offering me an umbrella. I was like, I live in Galway. Also, it's windy. An umbrella is pointless. Get a rain jacket. I can't control oil prices or the war in the Ukraine. I get up in the morning and I, I do what I need to do and I do what I can do. And I'm very glad to be able to do it. For the most part, when I plan things, I can actually do them. They are what makes up a good life. Not good in the sense of good or bad, but good in the sense of the ancient Greeks used to call it eudaimonia. Life will go on whether any of us are here or not. Especially with my mum. What happened with my mum? She'd been taking a medication for a long time, a necessary medication. She wound up with a bleed in her brain. I'd rather go through what I've gone through a thousand times than be where my mum is now. My mum is amazing. She's completely paralysed on the right side of her body and she can't really speak anymore. But every time I go to see her and take her out, she says thank you. And I'm looking at her going, as what you're thanking me for? I mean, seriously, it's the least anyone can do, I would have thought. Last summer, my sister and her husband came up to see me with their two kids, Saoirse and Joy, and we went over to Inishmore, and I was able to cycle around Inishmore with them, which mightn't seem like a huge big deal to anyone else, but for someone who couldn't brush her own hair, 
eight years ago because she couldn't lift her hand to do it. That to me is an achievement. I can I can read my books again um, because I can actually concentrate on them, which is which is really nice. I have more choices than I did before. I'm alive, obviously. I'm not dead. I have good friends and I have great family and I have a niece who thinks I'm the bomb. I don't know why. Clara, thank you so much for telling your story. Every good luck to you in the future. Thank you very, very much. Anyone who wishes to support organ donation is encouraged to share their wishes and keep the reminders of their decision available by carrying the organ donor card by permission code 115 to be included on their driver's license or by having the digital organ donor card app on their smartphone. More information and organ donor cards are available from various sources, including the Irish Kidney Association website www.ika.ie forward slash get a donor card by phoning the Irish Kidney Association on 01620 or you can free text the word donor to 50050.